0: Welcome to a podcast with Aaron Schultz. Men's mental health matters. Live life with an outback mind.
1: Thanks so much for joining in once again, episode 197 today. Uh, now, I have James Greenshields with me. James uh, is the next high-ranking uh soldier with the australian army um served in iraq run large teams of guys uh he's originally from horsham or his mum's from horsham where i'm i'm from uh so he's got uh, connections to uh Regional Australia, which is which is really amazing, and uh, certainly uh, James has got an incredible story to tell. Um, just through his own experience, um, you know, serving in Iraq, but also being in the military, um, his upbringing and all that type of thing that actually led him to join the army and sort of you know go through the ranks and become, uh, I think, as a sergeant or a major. I'm not too sure. We'll, we'll, we'll double check that as we as we go along here, but. Uh, James, uh, you know, come out of that sort of uh, environment pretty stressed out. And um, I remember meeting James about 10 years ago and talking about his journey and, uh, you know, what that actually did to his marriage, um, primarily the stress that he actually, um, that he'd taken on from his job, uh, I guess, at the end of the day, uh, and sort of hit the wall with regards to his relationship Uh was lucky enough to be able to have a conversation which turns things turn things around and uh you know since then he's been able to do some amazing things him and his wife christy to be able to help other people um, with their, their organisation called the Emergent Leaders Foundation. And uh, they've also done, you know, quite a bit of public speaking and um, work throughout the country to be able to help people. So, you know, James and I are going to have a really, really great chat today, primarily about uh, PTSD, but also what I believe and what James calls uh, is post-traumatic growth. So how can we actually grow out of, um, you know, these uh, these situations which keep us stuck, you know, and be able to maintain that and thrive, you know, after the trauma that we've experienced and lots of us have experienced trauma, uh, whether that be from work or our childhood or whatever you know so we seem to go in that loop and stay in that loop so um, yeah really uh, really think you're going to enjoy this chat really appreciate your feedback if you could uh, let me know what you think i'm sure you'll enjoy it as i said but first uh, email me support at uh, now if you'd like to help us out uh, the outback mind foundation uh, to be able to um, you know continue the work that we do throughout regional australia Really appreciate a donation. If you enjoy the podcast, uh, just jump on the Outback Mind Foundation website and uh, you'll see some information about what we're doing. Uh, yeah, it's really, really great to be able to get out and connect with people in regional Australia and be able to do work uh, in communities. We want to be able to do more of that. So any uh, support would be very welcome. Really appreciate it. Alrighty, thanks for listening in. And uh, again, uh, appreciate your feedback. G'day, James. Hey, brother. How are you? Very well, very well. How's things uh, down there at Mullumbimbi at the moment?
0: Mate, it's getting wet again. <laughs>
1: Is it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. We got so much water around here; it's like crazy talk. Yeah,
1: we had a, a fair, um, a fair pounding there for a few months. There was a few planes in the sky, which were probably creating it, I think, too. But um, uh, but we've been dry for a while. And it's it's really nice. But uh, yeah, certainly get a bit sick of the wet weather. That's for sure.
0: <laughs> good for fires, good for everybody, uh, wood heater.
1: That's it. Has it, it made you depressed?
0: No, mate, actually, uh, like, it's like a kangaroo, you know. A kangaroo doesn't sit there, scratch its ass when it's raining, and go, ah, oh, bugger, the day's fucked. <laughs> it gets on with its life, you know, and, and grab up in the country, I suppose. Yeah, you had a love-hate relationship with rain. You didn't want it when, the, when you wanted to, like... Um, harvest your hay and stuff like that but at the mm. same time you needed it to grow the hay so it's a it's a really intriguing um, one to i suppose inside become um or develop a a relationship with the environment which is not antagonistic
1: yeah that's true and being able to uh appreciate whatever's getting thrown at you you know what's this trying to teach me and be able to um you know manage what you're getting rather than sort of feeling negative about what might be presenting before you, I guess?
0: Yeah, totally. I was working one day with a, a farmer from uh, Western District, Victoria, and, you know, he has a big, big property. And at that stage, he was cropping 70%, sheep 30%. And I asked him one day, you know, when's the last time you talked to your paddocks? And he remembered the day he was 14. Mm. And he, he, he could tell me all about it, but he'd stopped talking to his paddocks and he'd stopped going with the flow. And so... He, like he actually did some deep work and he went back and he just started talking to his paddocks and he flipped it and he's now cropping 30%, um, sheeping 70% just mm. because that's what the land was actually calling him to do as opposed to a square peg round hole trying to smash it through which was causing really big mental health issues. Yeah. He started to remember what farming's all about and that's helping the land actually create.
1: Yeah, power versus force, eh? Hey? Uh... <laughs> exactly, man, exactly. <laughs> How much have we gone into force mode, uh, you know, trying to trying to force outcomes where we're not actually, like, watching and listening to what, you know, what the truth actually is at the
0: end of the day? Totally. And then taking responsibility on to force those outcomes when the responsibility ain't out.
1: Mm, that's it. Yeah, amazing, mate, isn't it? This is the mm. stuff they should have taught us at school. Sorry? This is the stuff they should have taught us at school.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I reckon... That's what I say when I do young stuff, like my stuff with young guys, wouldn't it be great for you to get Emotions 101, how not to get emotionally hijacked in high school? And everyone goes, yeah, that'd be great.
1: Yeah, I think there's a reason why they taught us the opposite. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mate, Sam, tell us a bit about your journey. Why did you end up being a soldier and how did it all come about?
0: Well, mate, I grew up um, central Victoria on a farm, a bit over two thousand acres on the southern boundary of the Puckapunyal military training area. And dad, being a Vietnam vet and heavily linked to the army, being a chaplain at that stage, was, um, I saw so many people through the house. Um, so many amazing men. Lots of uh, lots of vehicles would come onto, uh, especially armoured vehicles would come and exercise on our property. Um, and what I didn't realise back then was. Because of who Dad was, uh, Dad also had post-traumatic stress post-Vietnam because of what he'd seen and what he'd gone through. But he um, often, I'd walk past the lounge room, and there'd be someone. That the the It'd be dim light, the fire be going, and someone would be there with Dad. and And a lot of these people I saw from the military actually were really, really hurting inside, and uh, had seen the seen the worst of of human existence, being you know the epitome of war. and and come back really really hurting inside and dad was you know often helping these people so i suppose you know the three aspects there really are the military the farm and you know being of service to people to really uh, allow themselves to heal and to grow mm. and so you know off to boarding school at a young age straight into the military at 18 17 years an army officer and mm. you know amazing uh, amazing life saw so much of the world i suppose um Given the honour of you know leading over hundred soldiers into Iraq in two thousand and six and seven as what's called a combat team commander, um, and you know then I got to really witness myself under you know incredible incredible pressure and, and at I suppose the pinnacle of my profession you know into combat and mm. I learnt so much about myself but at the same time I didn't understand a lot because you know you you talking about motions one hundred and one in high school that would have been great to have. Mm. Like in that environment, I became emotionless, and because you know, I didn't think that they were really serving or helping, and and I allowed the culture to harden me from who I really was—the happy-go-lucky, fun-loving guy—and I became serious, I became intense, and and really, really, what I would call back then professionally focused, but I really struggled to to really understand anything outside my head. Mm. And it that became um, that really became where I existed and then I was hit by a roadside bomb over there, um, and a few other things that happened and and coming home the weight of all that, to, to see the Grim Reaper face to face, um, to experience, you know, having all those lives that I took personal responsibility for, so therefore their families, their extended families, everyone has a son, everyone has a daughter. Mm. Um And, you know, it's it's just really, it really sunk home. And so when I got home, post-traumatic stress crept in really quickly, about seven weeks after I got back. Um, After I actually wound down a bit, that's when the stress went through the roof. Mm. Um, So then, you know, a spate of that uh, into depression. And then um, I finally left the army uh, in 2010 um, and that's actually, I'd already sought help. I was, um, I was actually working with the personal development company as one of their front people um, because they were really helping me. But that's actually when I really, really went deep, depressed and uh, suicidal. Mm. Um, and then I hit rock bottom. And coming back to the to the point about the land, um, the um, military and the, the being of service for people, one day when I was eight, Dad was out with me feeding Angus cattle and, he just stopped for a moment and he just did this big sweeping gesture across the bush like he was looking at the bush and he just made this big sweeping gesture with his arm and he said there's my god Mm. and and i couldn't understand that comment but when i was going to the day i sat on the couch and said right i've got to go i'm just creating too much too much turmoil for everyone that i love i just had too much guilt and shame in me i remembered this situation and he didn't just say, there's my God. He then looked down at me and looked me straight in the eyes and he said, but, mate, you've got to go and find your own. Mm. Mm. And I realised I'd searched as a young kid in the church and I hadn't found him, um, and then I'd just given up in the military, and and then I charged on just doing the materialistic charge and hell-bent on all the social indicators of success, and I got caught in that matrix thinking I was just going to charge on and be the general and I was. I was doing so well in the military. Even when I had post-traumatic stress, I was a high-functioning, depressant and trauma person. Mm. Um, and they knew nothing about it because I didn't let them know. Mm. And um, then getting out and losing that framework, that identity of Major 3805476, James Malcolm, Greenshield's a so mm. It's like, who was I outside that uniform, out, outside those medals and that rank? And I... Mm. You know, I'd got out just on the cusp of promotion to Lieutenant Colonel and um, and if if I had stayed in, my, my career would have been swimming, but I would probably be looking for a second or third wife by this stage. But yeah. the other thing is, I, if I had stayed in, I wouldn't have been able to heal to the level that I have and integrate to the level I've had. And that identity would have actually held me psychologically and emotionally quite stifled. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it's just gone on from there in the last 10 years to create a charity where we um, we work with, you know, everything from taking, I've just come out of the bush with a bunch of men, helping them find direction, move through trauma and um, we focus heavily now on uh, a leadership practice called harmonic leadership, which is centred on three main aspects, um, purify self, unify team and then amplify your effect. Mm. Uh, and But it all is about, you know, the maxim that I actually learnt prior to deployment to Iraq, which was prepare myself before I prepare my team. And I knew that that was the case back before I went to Iraq. But I didn't understand the depth that I could actually do it to that I do understand now.
1: Mm. Amazing, mate. Um, geez, I tell you what, so much has come to me while you were speaking then. But um, one thing that I'd like to know is, you know, when you got back uh, from Iraq and that seven-week period and, and, and so forth, was there a lot of um, support sort of put in front of you sort of outside the clinical model and, you know, I understand your relationship with your wife was probably fairly strained then, but, um, uh, you, you know, that's pretty common, I guess, from the average man that's in the workplace, maybe that hasn't gone through the level of stress that you went through, but, um, but pretty much in general, you know, um, I'd like to know what your thoughts are on, on what our partner's picking up on us or from us and, and what, um, uh, what that uh, what those consequences can be uh, unless you're able to sort of turn things around like you did
0: okay so first question first about um, support outside the clinical model I didn't understand that there was um, yes <laughs> yeah. I actually thought psychologists were the only people out there I'd never heard of men's groups I hadn't heard of um, you know what emotional support was uh, I didn't understand any of that so my journey has been well, actually, my journey's been very eclectic. You know, I've, I've, I've sat in a North American Indian medicine circle. I've been in the jungles of Kalimantan. Um, I've gone on a lot of First Nations stuff. I've uh, gone deep into emotions and and I um, have gone deep into psychology and I've gone deep into uh, mysticism and mythology right through to building, you know, an understanding of myself. So, so my journey's been one where I probably benefited by not knowing what was out there because my heart really led me where I needed to go, mm. um, which is why I found, you know, the uni- once I put my hand up, the universe conspired to support me and it was just, okay, where am I? Where do I want to go? What's my next step? And they're the three questions that I keep telling people. Hey, Where am I? Okay, I'm in a shithole. I don't want to be here. Got, gotcha. I understand that. We don't want to go anywhere but here. <laughs> yeah. um, what's my next step? Okay. right now, just get up and do some exercise or um, get up and just do one thing today that actually makes me realise that I've got, you know, capability back right through to today. It's like, where am I? I'm in an amazing place. Where do I want to be? I just want to keep evolving. What's my next step? What does my heart say? Mm. So, you know, those three questions have really, really helped me. But you really touch a, a massive point, brother, with the with spouse because of something what's called secondary traumatisation where when trauma comes into a household, it doesn't just affect one perp- person, it affects the whole family. And anyone who's experienced trauma um, will understand this. But the big thing I, I'm here to also say is that everyone's a veteran of something. Like the farming community are some of the, the funniest buggers because they dismiss everything and they don't realise, you know, what they've actually gone through because, you know, I just need to harden up or... And I had a police officer like um, over the, the last week go out bush with me, and he just looked me in the eyes. And he said, "Mate, I can't have post traumatic stress. You went to war. I haven't." Mm. And so he's he's nullifying his own experience. Mm. Uh, and part of the journey was to help him actually own his own experience with no external um, metric. Just go completely intrinsic, internal metric to realise he is hurting. He does have post traumatic stress. Mm. Just just own it for the moment, and now once I've owned it, let go of the label, because mm-hmm. it is but just a label. And remember, anyone who knows anything about post-traumatic stress, it started out originally in the Civil War, the American Civil War, Soldier's Heart, then it became um, Shell Shock in World War One, World War II was Battle Fatigue and in 1985 roughly um, post vietnam it became post traumatic stress disorder but you can see just by those names it actually gets further and further and further away more clinical uh, more clinical or desensitized from the actual issue at heart and calling it soldiers heart's actually really spot on really because it's not just a um, psychological wound it's a a psychological, emotional, physical and spiritual wound that must be addressed all at once. Mm. But bringing it back to the family and your point, when I deployed, Kirsten and I were not friends. Like, we were two emotionally caged beings cohabitating. Mm. Um, we uh, I'd been training this my combat team for 10 months. Um, my daughter had just been born before I took over the combat team. She was six weeks old when I took over the combat team. I invested so much of my time uh, in, in them that, I forgot about my family, but there was another thing at play that I didn't realise at the time, and that was, I was just scared of being a dad. Like, I was actually running to work because I was really good at it. Mm. And I feared going home and having a toddler just want to connect with me when I couldn't even connect to myself. Mm. And so I'd get out of the house and say, oh, yeah, I've just got to go into work, like, Saturday and Sunday. Like, I basically was working seven days a week. There was no need for that, but I just found it was an escape. Mm. And so when Kirst um, took me to the airport to put me on the plane to go to Iraq, like, I remember her, like, going down the escalator at Darwin Airport and she didn't look back. It was Abby who was looking over her shoulder. Kirsty didn't look back and it was a really stark picture of where my relationship was. Mm. And she'll even tell you, like, she didn't care if I came home. We'd had a massive flare-up two days before I deployed and, you know, emotionally we were just, we were separated. And we didn't have the skill set at that time to deal with heated discussions between the two of us, like deep emotion. Mm. Um, Even though Kirsten had depression uh, in 2002, you know, I was there for, I helped her through it, but there was still legacy issues from that as well Mm. because it hadn't fully healed. So um, as the universe does, you know, in a beautiful way, if you don't heal a wound fully, it brings it back for you to, to actually do it normally on steroids so um i jump on a plane at the Port of war zone and and the worst day in iraq wasn't being hit by the roadside bomb it was waking up two and a half months into the tour when i saw my relationship to kirsty through her eyes and i saw what i had partook in or partaken in and and like i was gutted like for a bloke who you know, loyalty was one of my number one values and just to see what I'd done to her, to my relationship, to my fact I hadn't even bonded to my own daughter. Mm. Like my guts just went just into a massive knot. And I rang her and I started to understand why, you know, for two and a half months talking to her, that just we'd only talked about Abby. Mm. And there was a shell on the other end of the phone. She didn't really engage me. And here I am apologising, I'm saying sorry, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what to do about it. And, you know, I've been 12,000 kilometres away in charge of over 100 soldiers in combat and, uh, and having a marital um, uh, reawakening, it's, 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 it can be done. It's probably not the best circumstances to try and rebuild a marriage, but yeah. I'm here to say it can actually be done because we started, I wrote to her, I she even found the letter the other day, and um, I don't write. So I put it on paper, and I just poured my heart out to her. And over time, we rebuilt, rebuilt, rebuilt. So I saw her on my la- my mid tour leave because you get when you go to deploy, you get a a leave break. And I took mine really late in the tour. And I met up with her, and we looked in each other's eyes, and we realised we did love each other, mm. and we bonded again. And then I jumped back on the plane a couple of weeks yeah, It was about a two week break, I think. And then I jumped back on the plane and went back. And that's when it really, like, a lot of heated stuff happened over in Iraq. And the thing is, when I got hit by the bomb, everyone was running around going, James could have died, James could have died. Kirsty was the only one who said, James survived. Yes. And there's a Grand Canyon between those mindsets. Mm-hmm. And so when I got back, like, I'd never held back on telling her what happened over there, but I didn't have the emotional literacy to explain how it emotionally affected me. So there was still this void in the conversation, I couldn't talk to her about fear, I couldn't talk to her about um, the shame, the guilt that was so intense in my guts that it was nullifying me and causing me to withdraw further and further and further further Mm inside. So Kirst loved me and like Abby was there constantly just wanting to connect to me but I couldn't. I couldn't bring myself to do it. And then we have another child. In um, actually, Penelope Jane Grenschilds came into the world twelve months to the day that I was hit by the bomb. Mm. Um, just to demonstrate that you've got this, you, you're actually going to learn the lesson from it, and you you can actually move forward. And if to complete that story. The instant I actually got hit by the bomb, twelve thousand kilometres away, Abby woke up screaming back in her bedroom. Mm. And and they say that we're separate individuals. Yeah, 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 amazing. Yeah. We're all yeah, exactly. <laughs> but we're all so interconnected, and Abs and I have been so interconnected. It's amazing. But um, so you know, my my journey home, like I've never had a relapse of post traumatic stress, depression, or suicidal ideation since I got to the core issue got right into it and developed a whole suite of emotional literacy and intimacy and and grew from those that wounding. It wasn't the bomb that set me south. It was that over in Iraq, we realised we we're there for the wrong reason. We realised we'd been led up the garden path by government and by the generals and the actual military themselves. And so our honour code had been violated. Mm. And so the moral wound kicked in. Not only that, turn that on steroids because I meet the Grim Reaper a few times, including with the bomb, and so I almost made my wife a widow and my daughter fatherless for no really good reason. Different if it was a a, a really good reason, but um, because in in our opinion as the command team over there, um, you know, we had to sit down and halfway through the tour we had to recalibrate why we we're there because. We were getting conflicting messages from the headquarters that we were embedded into, which was the British, and the Australians were telling us to do something completely different. And it just put us in this really invidious situation and throw the Americans into the mix because we were on an American airbase and they wanted us to do stuff and we weren't allowed. Mm -hmm. They simply wanted us to help protect the airbase and we weren't allowed to do that. So, you know, it just became a real cacophony of Mm -hmm. um, mixed messages that ended up with us being very confused and we we had to reformulate about three months in how we actually did it and started to keep to ourselves a bit um, as far as, you know, we'd tell the Australians we're doing one thing, but we'd just make sure we were doing something that assisted on the ground. Mm. Um, but even still, like, that, when I got back, you know, it took about seven weeks post-deployment, all that came on top of me. like um, all Like, all those guys that those incidents where, you know, a a guy almost died. Um, And I was lucky on my tour, I didn't lose a soldier, a couple of wounded, but, um, including myself, but we didn't lose anyone. So all that weight of um, feeling like this responsibility just took over. And the other, other thing was every time I got hit or shot at or rocketed or blown up, I could never respond because I couldn't see the adversary. And I, I didn't shoot willy-nilly. So um, it just constantly being hit in the back of the head developed this powerless feeling. And that powerlessness is the heart of all trauma. And so that was my, one of the aspects that I actually had to deal with um, coming, you know, post-Iraq.
1: Mm. Mate, um... <sighs> do you know what? Do you remember the feeling of, of that, of that, that shame, that guilt in your guts, and how it shuts your mind down. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It was coming back to me then too. It hasn't been mm. been present for a long time, but it was there. You know, I I, mm. I I couldn't I couldn't talk to my wife, or I couldn't talk to really anyone because of fear of judgment.
0: Yes. You know, because you'd already self judged. Because I'd I'd already self judged myself as being guilty, shame and guilt based on judgment and. And, like, no one, like, I was being put up for all these bravery rewards, and I successfully self-sabotaged myself in all of them mm. because I just, I wanted, I wanted someone to acknowledge me, but I couldn't have that acknowledgement because of the shame and the guilt. Mm. And I, I was just being ripped from pillar to post um, with this feeling, which then just, uh, that, that's, I ran even further into work because that could give me solace. It gave me a framework just to operate. If I, if I went home, you know, my family were walking on eggshells.
1: Mm, dead right, mate. I remember doing the same thing, going in there on Sunday and sitting in front of a computer blank. I couldn't do anything. Mm. I couldn't do anything. But I was actually going there because it, it probably was serving a purpose where I was, you know, connected to the the job and the identity and everything, but, but I was just useless. And, mm. uh, and and that was that not feeling that you, you mentioned would shut your brain down and... I, I was stuck in that a long time myself. You know, I really, really get that. But, geez, mate, you know, how attached do we be, become to our identities? You know, you were attached to being a, a high-ranking soldier. I was attached to being a manager, all that type of thing. But but really deep down, we were, we were really struggling, eh?
0: Totally, and I do a lot of work with professional athletes at the moment in their transition mode. And the, one of the things that, you know, they, they keep doing is that, like, they get picked up at a really early age, so by, you know, 16 through 18, um, they're already invected towards uh, playing the professional sports, so they, and quite regularly, you know, a lot of them just get through Year 12 because they know it's coming up. They, they've already been you know, told they're on the list or they're drafted or whatever, and they get out and they go into the, say, AFL or whatever it is and then the jersey becomes their identity and they don't know anything else and i remember that as well you know i just was really focused on i got a scholarship to the defense force academy in year 11 and so i knew where i was going i just had to keep on track and Mm. and so i was bang i was in and and running as soon as i I joined the military and and i didn't know myself and there's a false initiation too that goes on um in, in in the military and police emergency services and professional sport um in in so many places it An initiation occurs that uh, breaks the individual's understanding of themselves down, which an initiation must. It must break the individual down. But the issue is it supplants that identity with the culture's identity of the self, Mm. of that person and what they must fit. Instead, a true initiation helps the individual build an understanding of themselves, a deeply grounded sense of self and how they fit into the culture. Um, the false initiation simply, uh, imposes the cultural norm onto the individual. Mm. So when you leave that culture and it can be, uh, it can be getting out of the mines, um, or construction business, it can, um, it can be losing your business. You know, you might've been a, a really successful buddy, um, guy with a a series of subcontractors working for you, whatever you've got, a, a, a deeper, you know, big business, um, or, you know, you can be in the military, you can be a doctor, you can be a, 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 a teacher. You step out of that culture and all of a sudden things start falling apart because the, what you knew to be true for you is was given to you from that organisation. So you've actually got to go and find your own truth. Yes. And we have not been, go back to your point about high school, we're not equipped to set self direction, to understand how to listen to our heart, and where you know to make heart centered decisions that are in line with our principles and our values. We're not equipped with that, mm. so it's it's a really pivotal thing.
1: Mate, I um I remember getting made redundant when I was um, about that same period, about two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, and like something that I have worked so hard for and so uh, become so attached to um, the, the identity of the role and the status and the amount of money I've made for that company was, was worthless. And, you know, I was, I was really, really at that suicidal stage too. And, um, uh, you know, I didn't get any, uh, my, my, my wife was a beautiful, who is a beautiful person, but, but I didn't get any, any help from her or understanding from her. And, and that, that hurt, that really hurt, you know? And, um, and, that, and when, you, when you're when you in that zone, you, you just feel like you're worthless and you feel like, you know, there's no one to talk to. I didn't want to go and talk to a psychologist or a psychiatrist or anything, you know, because I know uh-huh. that was just going to take me into a loop where I didn't want to go. So, you know, I was lucky to move through that and I started to move through it through hard work. And um, uh, that's the only way well, I'm still talking to you now. You know, I believe if I'd have, like... If I'd have taken that other course of action, which would have been easy, um, you know, um, uh, yeah, you know, it's so common, unfortunately, with men these days, but I think what you're talking about and, you know, the foundation of this conversation is to be able to give people those school, those tools that we discussed about the, the emotional awareness, and the emotional intelligence uh, and connected to what our, our heart's actually telling us, what we probably should have learned years ago.
0: Yeah, totally. And that's, I mean, we were talking before about, um, before we went air about post traumatic growth. Mm. Well, just up front about that term, in the psychi- uh, psychological and psychiatric realms, they're still very controversial terms. Mm. Even um, post traumatic stress recovery is a controversial term. And I remember presenting back in 2012 to the Senior Leadership Group of Department of Veteran Affairs, and we were bringing these terms into the discussion, and no one in the room knew what we were talking about. Yeah um and it was it was a really really fascinating and actually the um the lead psychologists were very confronted because they actually took it as an affront to their to their um what they were doing and actually what we're attempting to do is help you know um, enhance what they're doing we weren't actually being adversarial but our mere presence turned out to be adversarial because exhibit a of being someone who recovers from and not only recovers grows from it and now i've actually gone on beyond growth because our definition of recovery from post-traumatic stress is when you no longer have an emotional response to the stimuli caused the stress. Mm. So it, it neutralises. Because our subconscious mind, where the trauma is kept, operates its languages, images and emotions. And images is five-century, five, sight, sound, taste, touch and smell. Mm. Which is why when I got home, I was, it was a hot, balmy day, about 36 degrees in Brisbane. Uh, I was travelling in a maxi cab um, with one of those bench seats behind the driver so I was facing the wrong way and my family was in the cab we We're going to my sister-in-law's place and the window was open and all of a sudden i got a whiff of hot asphalt and like I had this massive anxiety attack and we were traveling at 60 kilometers an hour and All I could do was hold myself to the to the bench seat so I didn't jump out like I just wanted to jump out of the vehicle and What had happened is, and I didn't realise back then, but smell bypasses the neocortex, the reasoning, rational mind, and goes straight to the limbic region. So when I was in Iraq, when we would smell that, you'd smell that hot ash belt in the desert, you know, when you come up on a population centre or a town or a city. And when you come up on a town or a city, that's generally where the threat is. So you'd be waving to people to see if they wave back. And if they didn't wave back, you know, safety catches off, almost game on. Mm. And... And so that smell triggered my um, memory way back into, you know, by that stage, it was about two years before, um, or no, it wasn't actually, it was about 12 months, back 12 months to um, that situation in Iraq. And I had the emotional response to that situation. But the vision was back in Iraq, my stress hormones were at such a height that they didn't need to elevate much for me to be, you know, a hypervigilant. Whereas, you know, sitting in a maxi cab with my, my family, like I, I'm supposedly at a, a level of relaxation. I've just been shot back up to that level. So the effect was even more dramatic. But the thing also is I was a bloke wanting to, you know, maintain peace and serenity in my family. I already knew that I was having issues. And so I didn't want to show and share what was going through. I didn't want to be seen as weak. So I was also still in the military, I was a frontline commander, I was on the cusp of promotion. So I thought that, you know, all this judgment would come my way as well. So therefore I internalize it even more. And that that was a really, really hard one. But going back to the point about post-traumatic stress recovery, like I can smell hot asphalt now, no issue whatsoever, because there's no emotional response to associated with all the surroundings of that actual incident. And not only that, I've learned my lesson but hit, hit by a roadside bomb, brother. It was the fourth best day of my life, categorically, hands down, mm. because it was the kick in the ball sack that I needed to wake up to my priorities life. Mm. And it's not only wake up to them, but now I live them every day. I must, otherwise I regress within myself, mm. which then that's, that's realistically the definition of post-traumatic growth is when one can have a positive reflection for the lessons that they've gained from the experience. Now, physically, you know, as well as I do, if you, you cut your skin and a scar forms, the scar tissue is stronger than the surrounding skin. You break your bone. If the bone forms properly, reforms properly, the cells around the break are stronger than the surrounding bone. Mm. This is my issue with resilience. Resilience says in, in Cambridge Dictionary that um, two things, the ability to weather a storm or, or weather adversity, but the second one is more of a scientific definition, which is the ability for an object to reform to its pre impact state post impact. Mm, mm, mm. So, in other words, you've got to get rid of all the scars. You've got to go back to where you were before the incident, and that's not possible. Mm. You, 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 like, there's one uh, psychiatrist will use compartmentalization where they'll, they'll pull the trauma out and deal with it um, as a, and it, isolated incident and then put it back into the overall context my issue with that is it happens because of the overall context Mm. Mm. and so the lesson has to be not just as a closed problem it's a wicked problem it's it's like um it's an open system that's occurred within your your psyche your being that's been influenced by so many different points that when you move through and release the emotion then and only then can you actually see the lesson if you haven't gone through the emotional gateway which which will be there's two bounces that stand on the other side of both sides of the gateway one's shame and one's guilt and mm-hmm. fear like stands front and center so you've got to go through that emotional gateway to the place where the learning and the lesson is and then once you let go of any identifying identity towards the actual trauma, it no longer identifies you, then you will go beyond resilience. You'll go beyond post-traumatic growth. Mm. Because it's, the, being an army officer, being hit by a roadside bomb there, it was just a part of my life. Mm. And I, categorically, fourth best day of my life. But at the same time, I don't identify myself from it. Mm. And, and the only reason why I remember it so well is I keep talking to people like you and we keep talking about it. So it just jogs the memory.
1: Keeps coming up. But yeah, um, yeah. do you know why? Like like th- those conversations in two thousand and twelve, where they were like hesitant to uh, to acknowledge your comments, you know they they've come from a re- reactive educational system, you know a re- reactive educational model, whereas you're coming from a proactive one, you know totally. th- th- this is the growth compared to the the you know traumatic stress, you know that that's used that and um and 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 start to develop the. The, the, the framework to help us be able to grow from from that and beyond it. And, um, you know, I just think, yeah, it's really important that, that you know, people listening to this understand that, um, you know, the system that we're in is still quite redundant, I believe, in many ways. It's, it's, it's not working well anymore. I, I believe, you know, there is certainly uh, a need for some of their... Uh, wisdom and terminologies, but at the end of the day, I think we've got to start to be 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 able to get on the front foot rather than sort of stay on the back foot, and unfortunately that's where the system sort of tries to keep us uh, at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, um, I'm hearing the rigidity which has stepped in is is quite huge. I mean, I was involved in um, a group that was uh, building a, I suppose, what would you say, Um, it was, it was building a men's event a couple of years ago, and uh, we were tapped into a lot of the, um, the high-level charities, etc. Um, and the information that came from one of the CEOs of the top six charities, which get all the money in Australia, was uh, for mental health. That is, um, was we know that if we were to simply turn a focus on men's mental health, then we'd fix most of the issues in society. Mm. We're not allowed politically, yeah. So. They get all the money, and they're being politically hamstrung. Mm. I understand that, but the, the, the big thing is. And I was I was talking to um, I was talking to an ex-NRL player the other day, and and he was just talking. He hadn't been seen by the NRL since getting out, and he was really high-profile guy, mm. and um, you know he'd been out for eighteen months. And his point is, he didn't care. Like. It doesn't matter. He, he didn't need them to get in touch with him, but he just noted it. He got off his ass and he took a bit of time off, just recalibrated, just took a breather, recovered physically, and then said, right, now it's time to get moving. So he's proactive and he, he's back in society and he's doing stuff. Whereas a lot of guys, not I'm working with an AFL player that basically lost everything. And he was like, when I, I heard his name mentioned twice in an hour, and when that happens to me, I'm like, I'm all about symbols and symbology and meaning. Mm. And that happens, I'm, I know immediately it's in my front and centre of awareness. And so I reached out to another AFL mate of mine, and I said, have you got his number? Can you put me in touch? Can you put him in touch with me? I generally will not reach out to a person. Mm. But anyway, <laughs> as it turned out, the AFL player sent me his num- this guy's number. And so I've gone, right, what do I do? Yep, I actually texted this guy. And he says, yeah, mate, I know who you are. I've been pl- cleaning your pool for the last six months. He said, like, sorry, what was that? I know who you are. I've been cleaning your pool for the last six months. Really? Yeah, and it didn't it didn't make sense to me because I knew the pool guy. Yeah. Who, but, but he only came like half the time and I didn't actually know that there was another guy coming up like the other time because I never saw him. Mm. I always talked to the pool guy. And Craig was this other guy's name. I always talked to Craig. Craig was the other guy who mentioned this guy to me. And, and I've gone, how the hell did I not see you? And it's because I didn't want to see you because I knew who you were. Mm. But he got himself so bent out of, like, totally bent out of whack. Over two, 200 games for a major AFL club. And, um, you know, large-scale concussion industry, injury and, and, and stuff like that. So lots of lots of stuff that he had to deal with. But... He wasn't set up to transition, added to that, self-admission, huge ego, mm-hmm. um, in which we've had to work through because that ego identifies itself in the materialistic world, in the identity, uh, the cultural identities that have been given to them. So having to allow him to step away and find out who he really is has been an incredible journey to witness that he's doing. Um but at the same time, you know, he was facing so many challenges because of this stuff, mm. So and that common. identity.
1: So common, mate. Um, you know, a lot of guys uh, have been on this podcast that have, have gone through just that. And, uh, you know, soccer players, NRL players, rugby players, uh, sorry, uh, footy players, you know, cricketers, a whole lot. And, um, mate, well, you know, we're actually, like, quite lucky that um, uh, that, that we, we, we didn't make... Great in, in some ways because I think you know eighty or ninety percent that come out actually struggle from the other side because they're attached to you know what they became and uh, and, and not really equipped to be able to what um you know, or transition from what's you know post that I guess at the end of the day so so you, you're hitting the nail on the head with this because you can hit that 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 red button. And you can be basically going into post-traumatic growth or post-traumatic stress, you know, and staying stuck in that stress. And I think a lot of these guys actually are.
0: Mm. It's very true. I mean, the statistics will show about 56% of professional athletes getting out will experience depression. Mm. But that's only the ones that are admitting it. Mm. And... Like, um what I you know, being now involved with a number of them, they're telling me about their friends who are really, really successful and all the social metrics. and we just need to look back at the guy called Dan Vickerman who played um, played for Australia and rugby union. And he ticked all the social metrics of success and then took his own life. Mm. Um, and that's a demonstrator. Like, I was ticking all the the social metrics of success you know in my life, you know being successful military officer. Um, it, you know, getting the, pay, getting the pay rate. I was going on the up and up. I was the, I was first 11 within my peer group. Um, and then I get out. And it's like watching everyone else around me go, what the, why are you getting out? You need to stay in. Mm. And I realised that, the, I didn't actually realise it back then, but the, the tribe will only allow you to heal as far as the tribe wants. Mm. Mm. And... That's because of tribe stability. So my mum rings me in 2016 and goes, I'm really upset that your father wasn't here when you you got back from Iraq because Dad had passed on by that stage by the time I deployed. Mm -hmm. He um, passed in 2003. I went in 2006. And Mm -hmm. he was there when I got back from East Timor. And I got back from East Timor depressed because I'd seen how the United Nations actually works. And I'd seen the competence of a lot of military officers when... You know, I was still young in the military and still really passionate about it and couldn't understand why there was incompetence in the organisation there shouldn't be. And so Dad helped me extensively at East Timor. But I, when Mum ranked me in 2016, the words came out of my mouth. I don't know where they came from, but actually I actually do. But anyway, the the, the point is it's that the words came out that said, Mum, if Dad had have been here, I would not have recovered. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. a person can only help you heal as far as They've healed themselves, mm. and I've talked to um, fraternities and conferences of psychiatrists, psychologists, psychoanalysts, counsellors. I've talked to many, many different fraternities, and when I talk to those groups, I'm not I'm not talking about um, the their client base. And remember the etymology or the genesis of the word client is basically someone that needs an umbilical cord to the supplier. Mm. So yeah. if you've got a client, it's you're setting up an umbilical cord of a relationship of need of disempowerment. I don't have clients. I have people I work with, which confuses a lot of people because I work with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So the, the point about it is that when I talk to these groups, I actually talk about where they're at. And some of them are so high, so high in their head, you can't build trust and rapport from the head. It's a heart-based thing. Yes. We know this because when you feel emotionally connected to someone... You start opening up and you disclose more, and that's an aspect of trust, building trust, disclosure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they have to talk clinically to these people in their head to assist them realise that they actually need to do work on themselves to actually open their hearts. Now, I'm, I'm generalising here. There's a, some amazing people that are very broad and realise the confines of labelling and the confines of their profession um, are inadequate. So what they've done is they've used their profession as a foundation and they've gone on and become very broad and, and deeply holistic in what they're doing. Those people are amazing and there are so many people out there. Um, there is a, a new breed of, of healer, which is like not really new. It's the old, it's the most ancient form of healing, full stop. It's it's the people that have been through the experience now Training themselves up like, you know, like yourselves etc with all the stuff that you've done um, And you know this amazing podcast that you you're getting the message out there and getting all these people in and these people that have actually had lived Experience so that that resonance occurs to people that are currently in a bit of pain and they go right You know what? I am in, I'm in pain. I'm gonna put my hand up yep. I'll put my hand up and I know when I put my hand up that yeah, it's going to be turbulent um, but there will be someone out there that can help me because there always is. If I'm willing to change, the universe provides it, and they did for me. Like, every time I've stepped up in my life, that person or thing that I've needed has been right there when I've opened my eyes. And the thing is, you don't... You, like, trauma and, and depression are not life sentences. Like, I know this personally, and I've worked with people for over 12 years in the situation. It's, they don't have to be a life sentence. Like, I had to do the work. And some of the work was harder than bloody leading troops in combat. Give <laughs> the big tip. <laughs> but no, no but the thing is, it's so worth it. And the connection I have to my daughters now at 16 and 14, and my, my you know, I don't call them my wife too much anymore, but my life partner. And mm. you now, 23 years, it's like it's next level because the emotional ownership has upskilled me in life to have such a richer experience.
1: Mate, you know, you, you, we touched on it before, but. And it might sound weird to people listening about this um, this universe providing, but really, what we're doing is we're letting go, and we're actually opening ourselves up to what's possible and what's what's you know what's trying to work for us rather than against us. You know, we're working against ourselves consistently, and, and other other forces are working against us consistently. But once you can learn to let go and and trust and open up, you know, I, I know full well when I do that, you know, the right things come, the right people appear the right opportunities to present uh, too, because if you're giving out that positive energy and that positive energy is, uh, is um, you know, free-flowing, then that positive energy will come back at you. Would you agree?
0: And totally. Mm. Totally. As a matter of fact, you know, those people with a faith of some description, some form of religion will will often, especially in trauma, they will have a intriguing relationship with their deity, with the thing that they call God or whatever that, that word is. Um, and I've had many people do anger sessions on their God, and I think it's brilliant. Um, God's big enough to take their anger. <laughs> um, and it's necessary because it, it actually allows that emotion to clear for you to actually deepen your connection to your deity. Um, for those in a spiritual sense, that would be more like a First Nation people call it Great Spirit. Um, so, you know, the, the thing is, and there's a lot of shame and guilt in our First Nation people right now. Mm. Um and connection to the Great Spirit. If you sever a First Nation person's first tongue and take away from their first land, you are literally severing their soul, severing their umbilical cords of spirit to their dreaming. Mm. And you know, so much of that trauma has happened that we know. But the thing is, it's not irrevocable. It can be rebuilt. And this is not just a uh, you know, in this country. It's not just a black problem. It's a it's a multi nation, multicultural problem. Mm. Um, it's black. It's white. It's yellow. It's red. It's brown It's everyone because the land is now holding everyone mm-hmm. and we have people of all different modalities and spiritual Understandings that can assist the land cooperate Because the indigenous know that the traumas held in the land and their ley lines and so for them to heal the ley lines must heal as well mm-hmm. um, so, you know and trauma is, is like trauma is the gateway first nation people would say there's no such thing as adverse mental conditions there's just a spiritual awakening waiting to happen yeah but if you know if that doesn't like if you don't have that spiritual essence like you know i, I do challenge you on that because just go and stand in bush in the bush for a bit because you will have your own spiritual language not not imposed by culture by religion or or whatever and if, if if the, you've got a deep religious faith, I'm, I'm not slagging you off here. It's just you've got a beautiful faith. That's awesome. but And you would agree with what I'm saying if you're a person like that. Go and stand in nature and you'll see God just like my father did as an Anglican priest. Mm. But if you don't have anything, go and stand in nature. Just stand in nature and allow yourself just to deep breathe for a moment and see if you can't actually witness awe, like awe and wonder mm. because there's something which is amazing which has created this. And, you know, on a scientific level, don't, don't bag science out. Science is amazing because, you know, you talk about attraction and everything, and if you understand the law of um, vibration and therefore frequency and resonance and entrainments, you, you understand so much about the psychology of, of collective consciousness, of the collective unconscious, um, and the fact that when you tap into a culture, you're tapping into a collective field of consciousness. Mm. Um, and so when you, you can actually extract yourself from that um, and sometimes, you know, for me, I needed to extract myself from the military collective field of consciousness to to recalibrate, to heal, and rebalance. And I've gone back into the military many times to assist them heal. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, if you if you look at the the scripture, they say that Christ, Christ or Jesus, the person, met his disciples where they were at. He met James and his fishing man, and so he took them out. And they were in the boat. He met them all his disciples where they were at on the street at their level of vibration he never and then he took them on an initiation which was their discipleship and then it was his day of ascension where he allowed them to see his true magnificence he allowed them to entrain their resonant frequency to his and then once he then ascended they were at a point where they could hold that frequency and go out and do what they needed to do buddha did the same um muhammad did the same it is it's just all of these people were were basically doing the same works.
1: Mm, mm. Agree, mate. And yeah, well, look, we've worshipped those people in, in many ways, but but you're you're getting beyond that by, by actually getting back into the vibration of the earth, you know, and, and that's that's available to all of us. Like, you know, really, um, if we, I believe, as men, James you know we need to be able to get grounded every day you know to get back to that yes. that, that heart center and that truth um, you know and that and that flow that that internal rhythm which is there we just lose connection with that and the internal rhythm of the earth you know so up where i live now there's a ley line between um, the headland of 1770 and um uluru and uh, I was sort of unconscious of this sort of stuff, but I arrived here in 2020 and there was a, a ceremony at the end of December 2020 and, and people gathered at Uluru, they gathered here and made, I experienced something which I, I'd never thought possible, you know, just by getting out of the road and actually like oh just, just, just seeing what's going on and just see, seeing what happened in the sky and in the energy uh, field that I was in. Yeah, you know, and that stuff that 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 is, as I said, available to all of us. We just got to get out of our way so we can actually experience what the Earth's trying to teach us and what the universe is trying to teach us. And once you can sort of tap into that, then you know, life becomes limitless. I think
0: exactly. And this is—it's not new. Like lots of people try and brand it and stuff like this is the new thing which is going to save the world um, It's it's ancient. It's okay. I mean the first yeah. nation people were doing initiations into quantum physics you know, 100,000 years ago yeah. um, and because they because they didn't have all the limitations that modern-day society has placed on our consciousness and so you know, it's 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 but it's actually a great thing because you know, lots of people ask what the meaning of life is, and I actually think it's a great question. You're not asking that question, why, what's the point of living? Mm. It's like asking a seven-year-old young boy to do something and he doesn't know why he's asked to do it. What chance have you got to, to actually get him to do it? Buckleys, yeah? And yet we, we stumble through life not understanding the meaning of it. And meaning for me is very individual. Like I've got my own meaning and I've got my own purpose, of which I live moment by moment in, in my life. Uh, but the, the for me, you know, heavily, I've got five key aspects of my life that are all revolved around five fingers and in the centre of my palm. It's lead, grow, heal, teach, learn. Mm. And center, the centre of my hand is my heart space. Mm. So each one of my fingers is connected to my heart. So I must learn through my heart to be able to teach from my heart. I must heal through my heart to be able to grow from my heart and then I must be able to lead. Mm. And so you know, that's I can bring that to every moment of the day, sitting with my 14-year-old today, having breakfast with her and just listening how her experience was yesterday, um, waiting for my 16-year-old to come back from a very intriguing um, weekend that she's had away. You know, There's going to be a lot of emotional stuff that she's going to unpack. And so I know that my priority will be being with her, being present, not needing to fix anything because nothing is going to be broken because nothing ever is broken. All it needs is space to, for the energy to rebalance where it needs to go. Mm. And, and I won't have to do anything but love her, you know, and I don't fear that anymore. Whereas before, I always thought I had to fix someone or it was my job as a bloke of the house, you know, three women in the house. So I have a dog. It's a male dog. You know, I won't get a female <laughs> dog. I need some testosterone. But, just <laughs> yeah, <Australian. it's, laughs> but, but um, you know, I, I don't have to fix anything because they're, they're not broken. They're amazing people. And my job is actually to simply be there and, and have my physical presence, my beingness in their presence for them to utilise to to feel that connection to someone and then and then uh, allow themselves to express and come to their own conclusions inside and and I get to witness the you know the, the piece de resistance of that which is their life it's pretty awesome,
1: mm. mate. You know I'm thinking about the eight-year-old boy and probably the five-year-old James and all that that was connected to the truth. You're so lucky that you've been able to get to this now, rather than wait to the end of your life, like your dad might have, and then sort of, you know, picked up on it again. You know, uh, yeah. this is what I try and sort of help people with, like, why, why, you know, wait and wonder, like, just just get out there and get connected with it now, um, so you know when you leave this life that um, you've actually like been able to fulfil it, not attached to your identity or attached to how much money you got in the bank or what you're on your assets. There's no point being the richest man in the cemetery, you know. Um, <laughs> no I, point. I, I just think we we we've got it wrong uh, in many ways. But you know, people that have got wisdom like yourselves, uh, yourself, and 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 people from indigenous cultures and so so forth, can actually get us back to the truth at the end of the day. And it's interesting, you know, we've both got a connection to Horsham, but. When I was back there I actually um I got asked to go and do work at the the, the nursing home up there and I, I did men's health work and um I got to speak to a lot of the old guys about what they actually found was important, you know, uh in their lives and a lot of them were farmers that had, you know, uh, you know, created something pretty special and, and big assets and all that, but they just said I actually like loved working on the land. I loved being connected to the land. I loved the animals that I that I worked with. Um, you know, I loved my wife. You know, it was, it was all love. It wasn't actually. Um, it wasn't actually. Oh, I, I achieved this, or you know, we won this, or whatever. All that sort of stuff's impermanent, isn't it? At the end of the day, and um, I think you know, getting back to what we said before about the universe and what the universe is trying to teach us is actually getting back to that heart space again and that love because that's what it's trying to teach us on a daily basis, but it's sort of getting in the road of, of what that actually is.
0: So true, brother, and so well put. I mean, the guys out Bush, like they all had this common theme and the, the three common themes were control, trust and commitment. And they were permeating every single one. Like, there were different blokes. One was a farmer, one was an AFL player, one was a policeman, one was a youth worker. Yeah, they're just really, and one, one was a barber. Yeah, and they're very, very different people, but they all had those same underlying themes coming on. And... To break through control to this place where they realised the reason why they were trying to control their situations in life was actually to receive love, yet they weren't willing to open their heart to receive it because of all the things that they needed to control it was yeah. amazing. Yeah. And it was like, it was just a boom moment. like Literally, the, the fire exploded in that moment because it's just the understanding. And that's for blokes, uh, we sometimes suck at receiving. Which is a feminine quality, and it's all about our hearts. But we can give love, we can give this, we can give our services, we can go and do stuff for people, and yet when we need it ourselves, sometimes we really suck at receiving. Mm, uh, one of the best things that I've learnt over the last few years predominantly is to just uh, really allow myself to receive. And I might be going out with a mate, and all these things. He says, "Oh, I'll shout your coffee." Previously, I wouldn't have accepted it. I was, "No, no, no, my, my shout, my shout." Uh, I'll sit back, and say, "Really, thanks, mate. Really appreciate it." You know, or um, someone will drop something off, and I'll just go, "Wow, thank you so much." And it's like I'm allowing myself to really receive because I acknowledge how much I give, mm, mm. and it's that symbiotic relationship of the giving and receiving. You know, I realise now, for me to give, I need to receive, Yes. because otherwise my tank depletes and I just can't give, keep giving. So opening my heart space to receive love just allows me to, like, you know, I sailed through four days of just intense twenty, you know out there in the bush with them constantly. And and guys go, you know, don't you get taxed with that? Like, there's there's a recuperation period afterwards, but nowadays it's very limited because Mm. I love doing what I'm doing. Mm. And I learn so much just being with people and listening around the fire that, you know, I get something out of it all the time. I'm receiving something from it all the time. And, you know, this particular camp, I learnt, I even cemented the learning of flexibility even more and just allowing the flow to naturally occur and realise that there, we, we do, like, I, I allow the intention of the outcome to be there, but when I don't get fixated on it and I allow the journey to, to take us where it is and I allow myself to witness and surrender into the journey even more so I get to all the lessons of the journey as I go along. Mm-hmm. It was a really beautiful experience because I allowed myself to receive.
1: Mate, isn't it funny how we've actually fucked this up? Like we we <laughs> we, we, we 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 have uh, we have this mindset where we give something and we expect something in return. Or uh, you know, Christmas is probably a big uh, plays a big part of that. You know, if you give a gift to someone and you don't get something good back, then you uh, you hold a grudge. But um, but primarily, I'm not great at receiving compliments either. You know, I, I get them and. Uh, Someone gave me one the other day, and I actually like—I—I I, I, I floored me. I, I felt really, really uh, humble from that, and it's probably the first time I, I think ever that I've actually like really took that on. Um, usually, uh, that 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 shield around me sort of bounces it off, and um, I don't know why. It's just something that was stuck, you know, from from an early age. But um, I just think, yeah, that 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 receiving and that allowing that energy to come in is really powerful, you know your heart's open and and you know we've had so many blows to the heart which is more powerful than a blow to the body we're actually really protective of our our hearts you know um and that's why it's probably difficult for a man to actually receive compliments and uh, and that sometimes
0: well i know a lot of your blokes that you'll be listening will have have done a bit of men's work and i know you've been deep in it yourself i mean one of the things I notice about a lot of men's work is they focus heavily initially on the father. It's the mother that they should start with. Receiving a feminine quality, mm. um, and until we become balanced in our feminine inside, and for those that don't understand what I'm talking about, it. Feminine is not female, and and masculine is not male. There are energies within us that correspond to different energies and characteristics and qualities within the person's psyche. Mm. So, um, a great, if you want to look at the psychology of this, look at Carl Jung, the beautiful person. If you want to go um, to the spiritual side of it, look at uh, the Taoist, Yun and Yang. Yeah. Um, look at Buddhism talks about it. Hindus, you know, Shakti and Shiva, the, it's all around us. We just... Um, you know, we're just in the West, we're the only society which actually labels man masculine and female feminine. A, mas- a man, and I don't know, I'm preaching converted with you, but to the audience, a, a man is 51, generally 51% feminine, sorry, masculine and 49% feminine and Vicky Burker. Yeah. So for men, like one of the things, if we've got a mother wound or a feminine wound, then our level of receiving, which is a feminine quality, will be distorted. So a lot of, lot of the time, people spending so much time on their father is, is actually distorted because their mother will actually give them the greatest gifts initially and then to come around to their father and connect to spirit because this, the father's a connection to spirit, mother's connecting to Mother Earth Gaia, might matter, because the etymology of the word um, matter is actually mother from mother. So great mother. So connecting initially to this realm and, and going through the healing experience will then allow them to get to the interdimensional realm, which spirit masculine allows them to do. So, yeah, receiving is actually a feminine quality and, and um, a lot of lot, and emotions, you know, um, are feminine as well. So a lot more time spent in the feminine will assist the women in your life. Um, and it will allow you to actually have a, a far greater life. That's what I've, I've found myself. You know, I had to get to understand my deep primordial feminine. I had to understand my dark feminine, and understanding all that has meant my relationship with my with Kirsty, is like next level. Mm. Um, and my relationship with my daughters, because I understand that within myself, is is next level as well.
1: Mm. Yeah, amazing, mate. And that that's really interesting to hear talk about that uh, that feminine thing with receiving and uh, yeah I guess as men we are really protective of uh, of, of that and, and attached to our identity and ego too but letting go of that just can help help you grow I really believe you know if you're you're open and your heart's open to receiving that's that's probably a, you know, a, a, a I suppose a real take away from this podcast to actually like teach ourselves to receive more you know and actually like be be aware of it and um and don't don't give something expect something back you know do good things and, and start to do things which are positive and all of this all of a sudden those those positive energies come back which you know you can open yourself up and allow to receive so i'm gonna start to make sure that i do more of that too mate because it's something that i need to um, get better at I, I think for sure epicness Mate, how can people get hold of
0: you? Um, I'm on Facebook, James Greenshields. I put a lot of videos out for people to see, and um, you know, people get a lot from them. I'm on YouTube as James Greenshields as well. Or our organisation is Emergent Leaders Foundation, and the website for that is emergentleadersfoundation.org. Easy, mate.
1: Easy. So you've set it up as like a, like a a charity now.
0: Yeah, national charity. Yep. So right. we've done work around Australia, and and um, our, our charitable arm generally vectors into the youth work that we do, which, which we're recalibrating at the moment. So um, yeah, that's just the, the structure that we've chosen for this part of the journey.
1: Mm, amazing, mate. So grateful for the uh, for the army of what they taught you, and uh, yeah. for you to be able to come out the other side of it, you know, and uh, find your truth in this lifetime, and. You're only halfway there. You've still got, you know, another 50 or 60 years to go. So, you know, strap yourself in and, uh, and enjoy the ride, <laughs> I reckon, because uh, the best is yet to come, mate.
0: Awesome, mate. Thank you so much.